Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Late-stage ACL care is one of the most talked-about subjects in the world of orthopedic and sport physical therapy. So today we sat down to chat with Dr. Dan Lorenz to get his thoughts on how to approach late-stage ACL rehab. Dan Lorenz is the Director of Sports Medicine at LMH Health in OrthoKansas in Lawrence, Kansas. Previously, he completed the Duke University Sports Physical Therapy Fellowship from 2004 to 2005, and from there, he had a stint in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs as a physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I am Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are very excited to talk about late-stage ACL rehab. I'm uh, humbled that you asked me. Uh, we have a profession full of very talented, smart people. So um, it's a privilege to be here, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. In this episode, we want to zero in on the end stages of ACL rehab. This stage can be tough for clinicians for various reasons, like access to space and equipment, but also because this is not really emphasized in our education, at least in American physical therapy schools. So to be exposed to these end stages in athletes, clinicians really need to gain experience in a sports clinic, which can be hard to do. And otherwise we can be left kind of sifting through, you know, the wonders of Instagram or to find like to find hidden gems or trying to find like mentors. And that can be, you know, all of those things can be tough to do. So Dan, we would love your expertise on kind of like the when, the why, the how to progress patients through their end stage ACL reconstruction rehab. So maybe let's start at like four months out. So they're very much in the strengthening phase and maybe we're thinking about getting ready to run at that four months. What are you thinking about and what are you typically focusing on? All right. I know this is a JOSBT podcast. So are you teeing me up to say, no, Dan, it's not time-based. It's criterion-based. You should know that. You're the expert ACL guy. It's criterion. It's never time, right? So I'll start there. I got you. I got you. You saw right through me. I saw right through it. Um, so, uh, well, we, uh, well, going on that though, I wasn't, I, uh, I was certainly some, uh, some humor there at the beginning of our, of our little chat, but we do have to have criteria and, there's very little agreement. There was a paper a couple of years ago about even when to start running and it's kind of all the literature, but it just seems that, you know, that 70% quad strength, full range of motion, good single leg step down control is a, is a decent place to start. But of course, how you get there is an area that clinicians really struggle with. If they weren't struggling with it, the quads wouldn't be a disaster uh, when we're cutting people loose at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months or whatever, what have you. So we have a lot of uh, work to do in the time leading up to that. And I just think most clinicians just don't load people appropriately. They don't know how, or there's maybe some fear to it. Or if you're in a small 2000 square foot clinic in a rural community and you don't have a lot of resources, it, it, it's challenging to do that. But I would say for most clinicians, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, like you can do a really good, like a good job in those early phases with, you know, a shuttle or a total gym, you can still achieve those goals, even a step down, like you could do a a 10 inch, 12 inch step up, but a very, very slow eccentric component. We're watching the mechanics and the movement quality. A lot of those things can be done in an early phase without a lot of equipment. 
Absolutely. Okay, so I know this podcast is focused on late-stage ACL, but I am easily distracted. And you mentioned that we do often see issues with early-stage rehab affecting our late-stage care. So I'd like to just hear your wish list. If you could improve early-stage rehab so that your patient was where you want them to be come that four-month mark, what would be on your list? To get them to that point, I'm uh, I'm very eccentric emphasized in a lot of my programming. As far as sets and reps and things, we know from meta-analysis and strength conditioning research on trained athletes that eight to 10 sets per muscle group per session is the ideal set structure. But also we have to think about the loads that are in those structures. So there's been a number of papers that have you know, summarize that if we are looking at trying to work on hypertrophy, you're looking at 32 plus or minus five reps per exercise. So that's why we have three sets of 12 for hypertrophy. If you're trying to improve strength, 24 plus or minus five exercise for strength. That's why we do four sets of six. For power, it's 15 plus or minus five. So that's why when we're doing, you know, explosive plyometrics, it's, it's low repetitions because you want to be explosive and powerful. So going back to the original point I was making is that we have to make sure we load appropriately. And I think a lot of times therapists are just arbitrarily picking weights. And in the process of arbitrarily picking weights, there's, a, as my friend Scott Morrison says, uh, an opportunity cost by uh, losing repetitions. If you do a weight on day one that they could have done on day seven, you wasted six sessions or six days. So that's why we have to make sure we set the dose appropriately and work from there. Now, how you do that, whether it's an RPE range, whether or not it's a repetition range, reps in reserve is really something down the road you would do as you're you're doing higher weights. The further you go up with repetition maximum assessment, like if you do a 10RM, it gets less and less accurate the further away you get from one. So that makes it difficult to in those early phases. But uh, I, I really think it's, it's a loading and set and rep schemes early on. So loading, loading is the key. You love eccentrics to do that. Are there any other ways that you like to do that in your practice? And how do you choose that initial weight? You said that like some of those things are down the line, but like, what do you go to for in that four month phase when they need to get stronger, you're noticing that they need to be loaded. What are you choosing to choose those weights? Well, I would have seen them early on. So I want to lead up to this. So my, my first day I do a leg press, I start at 30% of body weight and I will work up from there and, and I will ask them, I, I want you at about 10 to 12 repetitions, but if you get 20, it's too light. Usually I'll do a double leg exercise first with the good leg posted. Uh, we know from the literature that if we elevate the uninvolved side, it increases knee extensor EMG activity on the affected side. So back squats, front squats, or trap bar deadlift. And then we'll move to maybe more isolated work like pistol squat. But again, the lower we go, the better. The, the lower you go in flexion, the relative muscular effort of the quads and the glute max increases. So our little eight inch, 10 inch step down is not doing the trick these late phases. So that's why going lower is key. But again, I'm also loading if I do a real elevated split squat, if I do a walking lunges, if I do seated knee extensions, we may have to tinker a little bit before we find our weight and then go from there. But we have to go, we have to go heavy. And again, when appropriate, of course. But we have to go heavy. And usually, like I said, I'm, I'm heavy and slow first because we need to eccentrics. If we look at the force velocity curve, the, the highest force is, is at the slowest speed, right? So isometrics and eccentrics are, are there. And then we work our way down the curve from there on out, lowering the load and increasing velocity performance. Many clinicians are unsure of when and how to return patients to running post-op ACLR. So can you chat about your thought process and how you get your patients back to running? I really do like the uh, criteria that was presented in a BJSM paper a couple of years ago. I'm at a 70, 75% quad strength. And now again, depending on what kind of resources you have and where, where, where you're working, uh, ideally a handheld dynamometer. 
Uh, I do like the 10-inch lateral step-down. I'm not looking at just quantity in 30 seconds. I'm looking at also the quality, which I, I'm not reinventing the wheel by saying this, but I think we, we look at effusion. Uh, we, we do know, I want to say something about effusion because people really get wrapped, uh, really get uh, worked up about if there's an increase in effusion. Well, remember, we, we know from uh, the literature, the, the reference is escaping me, but you know, up to a centimeter is really normal and it's okay. That's why I tell all my clinicians, any student that's ever rounded with me every single session, before we start, I am checking if there's any rebound effusion from the work we've done previously, because really this is what your joint is telling you their load tolerance is at this point. So uh, we look at effusion. If, if the effusion hasn't increased or it stays the same, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned. It's only if they get, if they have a significant increase. So yes, effusion matters, uh, active range of motion. They're not going to have passive yet, but if we're going to sprint down the road, they're going to need passive. They're going to need that heel to glute and that, and that soft tissue compliance right to left side to make sure that they can, again, that if they were to fall or slip or, frankly, just to sprint to have that heel get as high as it can, they're going to need that soft tissue compliance at some point, but they don't need it yet to start running. So really, those are the three things for me, the quad, the quad strength, the step down, the active range, and then a fusion. If those things are all in order, the physician get, is okay with it, uh, the athlete themselves feels good about it, then, then let's go. And so that's great. That's your criteria to get your patients back to, to running. How do you go about progressing them through that phase or even regressing them? What are you looking out for to make sure that they're staying on track as they move forward? So there's a numerous programs out there. I can't say there's one that's, you know, is the industry standard, so to speak, but usually it should make sense to you that we start with more walking in the beginning and less jog. And then the more they do it, it we reduce the walking, add more jogging. So till we, till we get to a point where we're jogging about 30 minutes straight. Now we're getting into more specifics about what sport they're getting back. I wasn't sure if you're teeing me up for my return to sprinting article we published last year during uh, in April of 2020. But now th that program is if I have more of an anaerobic athlete, soccer, basketball, football, what have you, where they would, it's specific work to rest ratios, but there's also specific strength goals before they begin each phase. And the idea being, again, that they need to complete the phases in those specific work rest ratios because of the fitness they need to get through them. So they, they check off all those three criteria that you're super excited about. And then you say, okay, I think we're ready to run. Is there any other great, is there any other things you do before that run or do you just let them loose and jog? Again, everybody, it just depends on who's in front of you, right? But uh, I will do jumps to the box to see how they respond to impact. We know that if, if you jump to a box, you've brought the ground to them. So the impact forces are, are a little lower. So we'll start there if we really need to, you know, bound to a box, so one leg to the other end of the box and then on land. So I would have done some land-based stuff first. If they're a little skittish about being on the land, I would have done some, some trampoline work. So everybody's different, but those are options that you could do prior to getting them to run on, on a flat ground. Are there any um, super common things that you see when people return to run that you um, have a good drill for or a good cue for that help with them? I think you see them kind of gallop. I think that's because of their inability to tolerate eccentric loads. So again, I, I, I'm such an eccentric emphasized guy for those first several months. It doesn't mean I take concentric out. I'm just eccentric emphasized. So th that's one. The other one I, I really like to do as a precursor to running is backward treadmill walking on an incline. So I have them kind of get like in a partial squat position and they're going uphill backwards. And, well, you know, that shows you a few things. I mean, you, you, you kind of see if they're, they're, there's a little, usually a little bit of a hitch if they're not willing to load that side or if there's weakness. But the idea is, is that they're staying in, in a knee and hip flexed position, staying down, teaching them 
to be in that position, to not land with a stiff knee, to land with a soft knee, to, to use their quads, which oftentimes they don't want to do, as we all know. They, they use that ankle and hip strategy. So this is a nice precursor to me for before I begin running. Another challenging area for many clinicians is introducing plyometrics. When, how, how much. Can you talk to us about how you go about implementing plyos into your late-stage rehab? It's really important when we talk about plyometrics that you have to have the strength base first. So sometimes I think the clinicians conflate plyometrics with jump retraining, which I think is a little bit different. So when you're first beginning either jump squats in place or broad jumps or bounding or like a scissors jump in place. I mean, when you're doing those things, it's a combination of movement retraining. There's that motor learning. So your higher repetitions at this point, the reproducibility of the motion. So I I don't really know if I consider that a plyometric at this point, because really to have the plyometric piece, you have to have the, the stretch shortening cycle. So an eccentric, a short amortization phase. So that's the time you're on the ground and then get off the ground quickly. So that phase happens later, but I can't emphasize enough, you have to have appropriate strength. If you look at Alvar Meal's hierarchy of athletic development, you know, aside from the, the movement quality and things like that, what we have to have is a strength is the foundation of athletic performance. You have to have that first. You can't be powerful if you're not strong. You can't be elastic if you're not powerful, and you can't be fast if you're not elastic. So it's, it's just absolutely vital that we have a strength foundation. Now, some have said that you need to have at least 1.6 time body weight squat before you really can benefit from plyometric training. Uh, how many of our patients can do that? I would argue very few. I mean, some have even said that in order to maximize rate of force development and those elastic qualities, you need to be able to squat twice your body weight. Again, how many of our patients can do that? Exactly. Now, uh, Lee Harrington has put out a couple of papers and others have suggested the same that, you know, certainly if you do a single leg squat or a single leg leg press, you know, about one to one and a half times body weight, how many of your patients can do that from zero to 90 degrees? I argue that very few can do that. And I think, again, a lot of that has to do with our strengthening and, and our approach early on. But also, in a sense, what I think a lot of us are battling everywhere is the, the heat we take from insurance companies to get visits done and you only have a limited amount or they have a, a deductible or those kind of things. So you're reaching those levels at this point in rehab where you start to lose people on their, and they're working out on their own. Are they actually doing the things you need them to do in order to maximize those qualities? So I know it took me a minute to get to that point, but what I'm trying to say is, is that it's when we talk about training objectives, it's absolutely imperative that if your training objective is truly working plyometrics, truly being explosive, it's all about intent. They have to put every fiber of their being into that activity. You have to allow maximum recovery between sets and you have to go short sets. If you were doing three sets of 15 on a plyometric, you're not doing plyometrics, you're just working out. So if, well, I shouldn't say that you, you could do plyometric activities, but if you're really, truly being, trying to work on explosiveness and maximize that fatigue is going to set in. That was great. And physical therapists, at least I'll, I'll speak to the, to the education in the U S it, it, it generally speaking, isn't big on strength and conditioning research. And so the thought process behind plyos isn't always there if, if you don't have that background. So I think the way that you break that down is, is really, really helpful. I've, I've seen you speak and, and follow, and I follow you on Twitter. And so I know you're big on giving credit to your mentors. What is some of the best advice that you've received that's guided your thought process around late stage ACL rehab? One of my mentors is uh, Rob Panarello, and one thing I picked up from having the privilege of speaking with him a couple times at meetings, you know, is that, you know, the greatest athletes do two things better than anybody. They put the most amount of force into the ground, 
and they spend the least amount of time on the ground as possible. Those two things. So every intervention that we are doing, we need to be asking ourselves, are we doing or addressing one of these two factors? If we are, we are appropriately uh, addressing what our athletes need. And I would say that the very first one, putting force into the ground, that is largely strength. So when all else fails, make them stronger. Now, the debate then comes in if, you know, if let's say they're you know, very, very strong, uh, they're squatting two times body weight, and this is a kid that plays baseball, does he need to squat anymore? My argument would be no, he should squat the heavy weight faster. Again, going back to, you know, those two, those two foundational principles, forced into the ground, least amount of time on the ground as possible. That's where the least amount of time on the ground as possible. That's where the plyometrics come in. But in order to be elastic, having the stiffness in the tissue is going to allow you to be most explosive. That's exactly what we're doing by giving people a, a strength foundation, making the tissue stiffer, which again, stiffness is resistance to deformation. Uh, as they hit the ground, that stiff spring is stretched and that, el- that elastic energy is released in an explosive contraction. It really is that simple. We, I'll, I'll sidebar here for a second. I, my approach is painfully boring. <laughs> it is. It's painfully boring. I squat, I push, we pull. Like it really do. Uh, I, I'm, that is why I'm not on Instagram. I've made a joke about this because people say, why don't you get an Instagram? I, because if I, you put me on Instagram, I'm going to show the trap bar deadlift for 10 days straight and just add 10 pounds of the bar every day. <laughs> like that's going to be my Instagram. So that's why I said, I, we, the circus like exercises we see, this is why people have a 30% quad deficit. Single leg squatting on a BOSU ball is not quote unquote high level strengthening. It is not. Uh, it, it's certainly a proprioceptive exercise. It's a supplementary one. If you want to change things up, that's fine. You can do it at the end of your session. That's fine. But you are not making people stronger unless they are com- there's a sport they play competitively on the moonwalk yeah. or about the house. <laughs> that was a great okay. sidebar. I love that soapbox. When somebody jumps from a, let's say a young athlete, male or female, they jump from a box onto the ground and we see their knees fold in like an accordion, you know, certainly there's neuromuscular control, there's weakness, there's lots of factors there. But remember that quick stretch to the GTO, remember the GTO is, it, it's inhibitory. It's essentially protective because you can't handle load, so it gives out, right? Well, as we get stronger, you desensitize that GTO. So it doesn't react to that quick stretch like it did. It, it, it's able to stop it and control it, right? I mean, that's what's happening. That, that's not my crazy theory. That's just what strengthening does. Going on that, so if we're looking at maybe more like six to 10 months out, we're still working with them. Are you incorporating different, more high-level strengthening? Let's use a, a phrase that you used, different, more high-level strengthening and then how, what does that look like? It, the, it looks the same. Hopefully I've just added weights, weights to the bar. Just, so, yep, trap our yeah, deadlifts well, all day no, long. <laughs> well, it, it's, well, but in effect it is until they've reached the strength goals. And uh, I, I, of course, train both sides, which again, I think is a massive error that most clinicians are not doing. We, uh, from day one out of surgery, the minute they can tolerate being up on their feet and getting on a leg press, we are pushing a heavy on their uninvolved side. There's good literature on cross-education for one and two. We know that that leg deteriorates. It started with Liz Wellsand's research, and it's just been more and more since. We know that other leg deteriorates. And in fact, I got a soccer gal. Uh, uh, she's a Division One bound soccer player. You know, we tested her at the six-month mark. Excuse me. I tested her the first time at five, and then I tested her again at about seven and a half. And her involved side had exceeded what her right side was at the first test, but her right side has increased significantly. So we're still playing this catch up game. 
right? But I don't believe she had a great strength foundation at the beginning. That's the key is that these athletes get hurt, but they don't have a strength base. Kids are just working on the technical side. Now they're not building their athleticism. You know, they're just working on the skill, not the athleticism. And that's why it's so important that we train both sides. So to answer your question, the late stages of lifts don't change. Now, if they've achieved the strength goals, well, now I'm working more power. So we're going lighter and we're going fast. So we might be in a 30 to 45% of one RM on the back squat, but, but she's going to go, uh, you could do many, as many reps as possible or very, you know, do five reps, but do them as it's intent, intent, intent. So as quickly as, as, as fast as you can, even if it's, they drop to the box very, very slow, they stop at the bottom and get up as fast as you can. That's the type of lift that would be happening, but the lifts don't change. It's just how you're executing them. And certainly if they have the, the technique and the skill and the coaching, Olympic movements are, are great for this too. And so that's part one of our two-part episode with Dan Lorenz, covering late as well as some early stage ACLR rehab. Next episode, Dan is going to break down what clinicians can and cannot recreate in terms of sport-specific rehabilitation, as well as go over his approach when returning his athletes to sport. Thank you, as always, for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.